love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So this is the first show that uh, that lands after our live show at Zany's Comedy Nightclub in Nashville. Really? Yeah. And I'd like to be able to tell you how the show went. Let's let's do some predictive speech like it's almost like visualization but we're we're saying it as yeah. though it's already happened ready Be- because we recorded this before the live show so right. you're, yeah. you're still in maine yeah and we it's cold we haven't humiliated ourselves publicly yet as of the recording no that's the this. opposite of what we're doing oh that's right, right. positive visualization Gosh, yesterday okay. went well oh, it was great yeah i really sold enjoyed out. it yeah sold out crowd and Man. people uh they said nice things they said nice things and I didn't throw up. Th- you did such a great job. I'm yeah. so proud of you. Thank you. You're welcome. Of course, this has no bearing or relevance whatsoever because the show hasn't happened yet. It, it, as of the recording of this uh, <clears throat> I, episode. I feel like we made that clear. Okay. But man, yesterday went well. <laughs> Got this email from curator at theboxofoddities.com. It says... No, they, we didn't get it from them. They sent it to us. Hello, Kat and Jethro. My husband introduced me to the Box of Oddities two weeks ago, and I've been binging the entire podcast since. Uh, A frequent statement in our house is, we should email Kat and Jethro about that. Thanks for sharing so many fun and weird things about this world. And there are several examples of things that they wanted to uh, send to us. So I'm just going to read you one. Your story on the professional imposter Stanley Wyman made me think of a relative. In my circle of family and friends, we have a game we like to call the family game. The rules are simple, and quite frankly, you don't want to win because it means you have the craziest relative. It's an ongoing game in which we share stories about relatives and try to come up with the wackiest but true things relatives have done. One of my one of my best entries to the family game is a distant cousin. This cousin decided he wanted to ride on a Learjet. So he called them up and said he was interested in taking one for a test flight. Learjet flew a plane to the airport nearest to him, took him for a flight, which he enjoyed immensely. They landed to discuss terms of the purchase. When they asked him to start the paperwork, he said, Oh, I, I don't want to buy a Learjet. I just wanted to fly on one. So thanks to my distant cousin... 
Learjet now has a strict policy on test flights. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, that's a a winner there. Someone's got to do that once. I have a friend who used to do that, but with cars. Well, sure. You know, it's a little go different. Go for test drives, take dates out, and in, in oh, the. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. that's a little uh, sketchball. Super sketchy. Yeah, he was super sketchy. The box of oddities. You go first. This episode. Oh goodness. Yeah. Do you know who Schlitzy is? Schlitzy, Schlitzy, Schlitzy was the mascot for a second-rate beer company out of Milwaukee. <laughs> it's a great guess, and that actually kind of sort of right, but no. I used to have a Schlitz hat that I treasured, um, and a man asked me if he could borrow it for a Halloween costume, <laughs> and I agreed because I'm an idiot, and I never got it back. What kind of a Halloween costume requires a Schlitz ball cap? I believe he was a Schlitz enthusiast. I see. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so Schlitzy, uh, which... Is, it has a couple different spellings, but it doesn't matter. Schlitzy was possibly born Simon Metz, but we're not sure. And legally, Schlitzy is known as Schlitzy Surtees, but that's not really his name. So Schlitzy's true birth date, name, location, parents, the information on his death certificate and gravesite, um, all kinds of questions, really. We, we don't have any real good answers, um, though uh, there is some information that has been surmised and is pretty, pretty reasonably accurate. Let's go with 85% potentially accurate. Schlitzy was born with a neurodevelopmental disorder that left him with an unusually small brain and skull, and his skull was shaped... Uh, in such a way that as he became well-known as Schlitzy, he also became known as a pinhead. A pinhead. Okay. Yeah. Okay. He Schlitzy stood at about four feet tall. He had a severe intellectual disability. And uh, some sources claim that he was born in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, because there are claims that he was one of the last of the Aztec children. I see. Yeah. So they were clearly marketing him right away. Absolutely. Um, it. Information about his identity at birth may never actually be known, uh, but the information wa- that we do have, um, like I said, we've kind of gathered, and in, in this case, because he was passed off from carnival to carnival, and what's the word that I'm looking for? Oh, guardian to guardian, uh, most of the, the true information about Schlitz- Schlitzy has been lost. Legend has it that he had a similarly afflicted sister, Athelia, and they were children of a financially and socially prominent family in Santa Fe. But it is doubtful that Athelia, who is seen in some photographs with him, was actually his sister. There's a photo of Pete Cortez, who is a freak show owner, um, and he is with two small children. One is believed to be Schlitzy. The other is... uh, rumored to be his younger sister Athelia but they probably just they probably just all show gathered kids with this kind of affliction and then called them siblings what year was this they believe that Schlitzy was born in 1901 okay and that was the height of the traveling carnival slash freak show circuit absolutely and he was most likely born in the Bronx and he became 
incredibly well-known and uh, highly sought after as a carnival attraction, occasionally being billed as Maggie, last of the Aztec children. Schlitzy was often dressed in a muumuu and presented as either female or androgynous to add to the mystique of his unusual appearance. Um, and those who knew him uh, used masculine and feminine pronouns. There was no real consistency there. Uh, but there's also a thought that because he was incontinent, that his caretakers thought it would just be easier to take care of him if he was in a dress. Um, he, I see. Things were okay. more easily accessible to right. clean and take care of. Oh, my. There are some benefits to wearing moo-moos. Well, they're hot. There's, there's no getting around it. I love a moo. No. Um, my mother's mother used to have this one type of day dress that she wore. I don't know what it was actually called. I think I think some referred to it as a house coat, but it was like a it was like a nightgown dress. In my head, I can picture exactly yeah. what you're talking about. Some it, of them it, kind of a floral pattern, absolutely loose fitting, light fabric, horrible fabric, often worn with big fuzzy pink slippers. Exactly. Yes. Smoking a camel. Um, I don't remember if she smoked or not, but it seems like something she would have done. Okay. Um, oh, she did have that cigar box full of crayons. I wonder if that was. It doesn't matter. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, when I was a kid, uh, I had a box of crayons that I would use when I was at my mother's mother's house. And um, one year she gave them to me for Christmas, which I took to mean never come back. Um, <laughs> my mom insisted that that was not what it was intended to mean. But I was done with that I situation. See. Okay. Oh, <laughs> that's a beautiful story. You tell it so well. Thank you. Um, where was I? Oh, yes. On the sideshow circuit, people uh, with this kind of affliction uh, would generally be known as pinheads or missing links. Schlitzy was billed under titles like Pinhead, The Last of the Aztecs, The Monkey Girl, and What Is It? I remember seeing some old carnival artwork promoting the What Is It? That's Schlitzy. Good Lord. It was said that Schlitzy had the uh, mental capacity of about three. Uh, he was unable to fully care for himself. He could only speak in monosyllabic words and a few simple phrases. However, he was able to perform simple tasks and he was able to understand what was said to him and had an uncanny ability to mimic people. So... If he heard huh. other people saying full sentences, he would just turn to somebody else and repeat that sentence so that the other person thought that you were having a conversation with Schlitzy, but you weren't. You were just speaking with that that mimicry. Wow. But he loved doing that. He loved that interaction with people. And you could see him light up when he was on stage that is and so, he could actually speak to people. So sad. It really is. But there was, you, from what I've read and from the accounts that I saw, there was joy, that he was joyful about his life. There, there was, you know, like a child enjoys hmm. interacting with people and uh, performing for people. So when you take that into consideration, was he being abused? If he was happy 
Well, he was for sure being exploited. Mm. There, it's it's one of those really tough situations because every at the time there was a different mindset. He was being taken care of. He was happy. Allegedly, allegedly. Those who knew him described him as affectionate, exuberant, a sociable person who loved dancing and singing and being the center of attention. Oh my goodness. So he would literally go out of his way to talk to people, interact with people, and perform for them. So if it's something, I mean, it's a good question. If it's something he wanted to do anyway, I, I don't know. That's a hard one. It does sound like he was very childlike. Yeah, for wow. sure. Uh, Schlitzy throughout the 1920s and 1930s was employed by many upscale circuses, including Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, Clyde Beatty Circus, Tom Mix Circus, Kraft's 20 Big Shows, and Foley and Burke Carnival. He landed his best-known role as an actor in Todd Browning's 1932 horror film Freaks. And it's really upsetting to see some of the posters talking about, like, meet the true horror. And then there's Schlitzy, who you've just read, is this most loving and affectionate, kind, gentle little soul. And he's marketed as this horror being. So Freaks, the the film, takes place in a carnival. And it featured a number of genuine sideshow performers, um, including conjoined twins Daisy and Violet Hilton. Right, who we've uh, talked talked about in previous episodes. Um, and uh, Schlitzy had a scene of dialogue with actor Wallace Ford, and two other pinheads also appeared in the film and in that scene. While Schlitzy was performing with the Tom Mix Circus in 1935, George Surtees, a chimpanzee trainer with a act in the show, adopted him, becoming his legal guardian. In 1965, when Surtees died, his daughter, who wasn't in show business, who didn't really interact in that world, didn't know what to do with Schlitzy, so she brought him to a hospital in Los Angeles and left him there. That seems harsh on the surface, but what options would a person have back then? Not abandoning a Not human a, at a hospital? Yeah, yeah I guess. Oh. Well, Schlitzy remained at that hospital for some time until he was recognized by... Bill Frenchy Unks, who was a sword swallower. He happened to be working at the hospital during his off-season, and uh, Schlitzy seemed to miss the carnival dearly. Unks was heading back that way, so he took him. And uh, being out of the public eye had made Schlitzy very depressed. And there were actually doctors who said that if he had continued being in the hospital, separated from people and made to feel not special, um, that he would have just died of a broken heart. Just withered up and and died. Yeah. So the hospital authorities deemed that the best option for Schlitzy was to make him a ward of Unk's employer, who was showman Sam Alexander, and they returned him to the sideshow where he remained until 1968. Was he he happy again? He was thrilled. Oh, that's great. He was thrilled. Um, His last appearance was at the 1968... Dobrik International Circus held at the Los Angeles Sports Arena. Schlitzy also became a notable attraction performing on the streets of Hollywood. His caretakers would take him out and he would, uh, they would sit on a bench and he'd like feed birds and stuff. But if he saw people, he would call them over and, you know, perform for them or dance for them. And um, 
so the caretakers started taking advantage of it. So they took him out and sold souvenir pictures and uh, charged people for certain interactions with Schlitzy. Um, and he was loving it. They had a whole line of Schlitzy merch. That's right. He spent his final days in uh, Santa Monica on the boulevard. He liked going to MacArthur Park. Um, he would visit the lake with his guardian, again, feeding those birds. He loved it and performing for anyone who would walk by. The people in that region started to get to know Schlitzy pretty well and realized that he wasn't, you know, just some freak. He wasn't as he had been marketed. He was this sweet, gentle boy. Mm. And they started calling him Ratoncito, which means little mouse, which I just think is so endearing and sweet. And uh, Schlitzy was thrilled to be once again playing to the local crowds. And uh, he did so until the age of 70, which I don't know much about his affliction because there are several things that could have caused his individual abnormalities. Mm -hmm. But it seems like 70 is... A hearty age for someone who was dealing with so much physically. One would think, and especially when one is living a nomadic life. Exactly. For most of their existence. And I picture 1920s, 30s, 40s sideshows as being dusty, no matter where they are. Yeah. There's dust. I picture like Carnival, like the TV show Carnival. Yes. Or that's exactly what I'm doing. Or American Horror Story, the uh, the freak show uh, season. And speaking of American Horror Story, there was a character. I'm not sure if it was the freak show season or the asylum season that uh, the character was clearly inspired by Schlitzie. Yeah, yeah. And I think they called her Pinhead yeah. on the show. Pinhead. Yeah, yeah. So Schlitzie did die in 1971 of bronchopneumonia brought on by medullary depression. Medullary? I don't know what that word is. So Schlitzie died in 1971 of pneumonia. At this time, he had been turned over to uh, LAC, USC Medical Center as a ward of the state. So once again, he was a ward of the state mm. and alone, and he passed away under supervisory care offered at Fountain View Convalescent Home in Los Angeles. But did people come to visit him? At the very end, I don't know. I can't imagine they wouldn't have because he did really endear himself yeah. to all the people who were around him. I hope so. His remains were interred in October of 1971 at an unmarked grave at Queen of Heaven Cemetery in Roland Heights. Years later, I believe it was 2009, a group of people got together and said that it you know, basically, it wasn't right that Schlitzie, who had been utilized to make money his whole life, who had been passed from person to person, who had done nothing but live to love and entertain people, um, had an unmarked grave. Mm. So they got together, uh, pulled together some money and made a really nice marker for him with the name Simon Metz, which is the best guess for what we have for a real name. And um, that's heartwarming. It's heartwarming and heartbreaking. You see, it's heartbreak warming. It's yes, it is heartbreak warming. The idea that people who never knew him wanted to do this for him is beautiful. But the idea that because of his afflictions, because of 
show business because he was just used to make other people money. He was stripped of every bit of real identity that he had. And maybe that didn't affect him. But to me, it seems like we don't even know his real name. And that makes me it makes me have the big feels. But yes, the people got together, they made him a nice marker, and it looks really pretty now. And there are pictures of it. You can find it on like Find a Grave. Um, and uh, Schlitzie is remembered today as one of the most well-known, uh, quote-unquote, sideshow freaks. So Schlitzie lived his entire life. Mm-hmm. He was kind. Yep. He was affectionate. Yep. He loved to make people happy. Mm -hmm. My guess is he never caused anybody any trouble ever. I couldn't find any record of anything like that. And he accomplished all of those things under very difficult circumstances. How many of us can can even begin to say that when our last day arrives, that we will have accomplished as much as Schlitzie did as far as bettering humanity? Yeah. And when you look at what, I don't know. It's maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm oversimplifying, but it seems like in a life full of exploitation, he just was was sweetness. And like you said, how many people in their last days will will know that they only brought sweetness, especially with all the hardship that 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 he encountered. I mean, I get cranky when I can't find the remote. Mm. I feel really dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I would like to go at some point and pay my respects to Schlitzy. Let's go. Los Angeles? Yeah. Sounds good to me. And now, that thing in the middle. Here are some creative and unusual homework answers from some pretty smart kids. Number five. The question is, use a strategy you have learned. Tony buys one dozen roses. One half of them are red. How many of the roses are not red? The answer, one half of the roses are not red. Number four, think of different addition strategies. Write or draw two ways you can solve four plus three. Way number one, use your fingers. Way number two, cheat off a friend. That's nice. He's honest anyway, sure. Number three, field trip homework. What was your favorite part of the field trip? I had no favorite part of the field trip, but I liked the bus ride. (laughs) Number two, This looks like it came from Sunday school. Together as one family, at Mass, we celebrate God's love through prayer. Draw your favorite part of Mass. And the kid drew a picture of a church and him running away from it saying, bye. (laughs) (laughs) And number one, apparently looking for extra credit, a child just drew two circles at the bottom of his page and wrote, but... This is my butt. (laughs) The teacher said, we did not have this question on the board. I said we would not talk about this word. This is my butt. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. The podcast world is growing bigger every day, and Himalaya wants to help you navigate it. Himalaya is a brand new podcast app where you can find every single podcast you love and some future faves. Whether you're a podcaster or a fan, Himalaya has got your back. Discover personally curated playlists and show your favorite podcasters some love with Himalaya's Tip Jar. It's free, it's the easiest to use, and we're adding cool new features every day. Go to your app store, download Himalaya. That's H-I-M-A-L-A-Y. And don't forget to follow the Box of Oddities once you're there. This is the Box of Oddities. Your mileage may vary. I was going through some old DVDs that um, 
that I had in a box because we're trying to downsize, mm. you know, we're, we're getting ready to hit the road in our RV sometime in the next year or so. And that's how we're going to live in an RV part of the year. And I came across the gods are crazy. Remember that movie? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's about an isolated tribe that, uh, loves Coke. <laughs> well, now let's specify Coca-Cola. It's an isolated tribe where an airplane flies over their, uh, their, their village and a Coke bottle falls out of the airplane and they find it and they have no frame of reference. So they think it's a sign from the gods. Apparently it's been too long since I've seen this movie because I don't remember the plot at all. I okay. just remember that it, you, you make yourself tall to be uh, intimidating to predators and Coke. That's it. Yeah, A Coke bottle. Yeah. Well, the whole idea of a tribe being isolated from society until modern day has always captivated me. Sure. And it reminded me of the uh, story in the news last November about the missionary yeah. that went to the um, the isolated island. The guy's name was John Cho. And he was uh, killed by the local population. They didn't want him on their island. Mm-hmm. Heard a lot of conflicting stories about that situation. I'm interested to see what you have to say. My sources are New York Times, The Insider, Weather.com, believe it or not, and National Geographic. According to uh, the fisherman who helped Mr. Cho, what happened was they took a motorboat from Port Blair to the island of North Sentinel. Whereabouts is this? It's off the coast of India. So Mr. Cho wanted to, uh, to reach the island and to preach the gospel, to introduce the natives to the Christian Bible. He was not supposed to go there. No. They, uh, the, the Indian government said, uh, hey, hands off, don't go there. Not only is it dangerous, but leave them alone. Right. You know? Yeah, it, it's dangerous for you and it's dangerous for them. So the fisherman said that uh, Mr. Cho hired him to take him from Port Blair to North Sentinel Island. It was several hours by motorboat. He waited until the next morning at daybreak, and then he tried to get ashore. He put his kayak in the water Mm -hmm. about a half a mile or so from the island and then paddled toward the island. Uh, The fisherman said that uh, tribesmen shot arrows at him and that uh, Mr. Cho retreated temporarily. He tried several more times to reach the island over the next two days. Uh, Police said he brought gifts. He was trying to uh, show his good intent. He brought a small soccer ball Mm -hmm. and some scissors and fishing line. I would think that scissors would seem very menacing. That's true. I can see how it would be helpful, but also terrifying. If you don't know what they are. Right. So this was about the 14th of November. By the morning of the 17th of November of 2018, the fishermen said they saw the islanders with his body. Oh. The seven people who helped him reach the island were arrested, charged with culpable homicide, not amounting to murder, and with violating rules protecting the Aboriginal tribes. In an Instagram post, uh, his family, Mr. Chow's family, asked for the release of the seven and said that he had ventured out on his own free will and to not blame them for it. So who are these people and where is this island? The island, uh, the islands are more than 700 miles from the mainland. And the Indian government made the decision that any contact with the islanders 
could destroy their culture and maybe even their lives. We're talking about a group of people whose lifestyle has changed very, very little over not only centuries, but millennia. Their immune systems may not be able to match modern microbes. Right. Yeah, from what I had read, that it, the main concern was the illnesses that can be brought um, and carried to a population like that that do, has no... Defense mechanism. Right, no interaction with that kind of bacteria or a virus. Yeah. Indian officials describe them as a cultural treasure to be protected. Yeah. Now, uh, they wear loincloths. They live in simple huts. There are only thought to be 50 to 100 of these guys left. Oh, wow. T.N. Pandit, who is an Indian anthropologist and visited North Sentinel Island several times between 1967 and 91, said their hostility is simple. They want to be left alone. They're not wanting anything from you. We are coming to them. They suspect that we have no good intentions, and that's why they're resisting. They probably have some experience with people coming to their island and not having great intentions. This is true. We're going to get to that. Okay. They're an endangered hunter-gatherer tribe living in on the North Sentinel Island. That's of the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. I had to look it up. I, I, lo I brought up the map. It looks beautiful. It does look beautiful. It's about an island uh, around 25 square miles. It's not very big, but big enough for them. They're officially Indians, but their language and lifestyle are nothing like mainland Indians or even other Andaman Islanders. They've been completely cut off socially, culturally, economically, even from their immediate neighbors. On the islands? On the Andaman and Nicobar Islands? Yes. Yeah. They are thought to be the last surviving pre-Neolithic tribe on Earth. That is fascinating. It sure is. And you said that they were hunter-gatherers, so they yeah. don't partake in agriculture? Nope. They live mostly on food from the ocean, crabs, fish, and coconuts from the island. That's their main diet. And as I'm taking a look at the map here, it looks like the island is actually closer to, like, Myanmar, um, very near to Thailand. So, like... Here's the, the Bay of Bengal. Let's say the Bay of Bengal is a, a lady's head. Okay. And um, the nose is the middle of the Bay of Bengal. No, that doesn't make any sense because you have eyes on both sides of your head. <laughs> They've been there, it's estimated to be 55,000 years. Whoa. They've retained their language and way of life by resisting any contact with the outside world. And they're thought to be direct ancestors of the original African community that ultimately we all came from. Oh, wow. So is it the entirety of North Sentinel Island that is off limits? Yes. Perfect. Okay. Just the satellite photo makes me feel a little weepy. It looks like a llama's eye. Now, they're estimating 50 to 100 of these people remain. But no one knows the exact population for sure because counting them is hard. Uh, getting an accurate estimate of the population is very difficult. Uh, the 2001 census counted 21 men, 18 women. The 2011 census counted 12 men, 3 women. Obviously, that system is flawed. Sure. But the best guess is somewhere between 50 and 100. Some say as low as 15. Some say as many as 100. Are there any mainland people that they trust and interact nope, with? They None. don't trust. They don't even trust or interact with 
their closest neighbors on islands that are relatively close Got by. It. Got it. In fact, no one. No, yeah, no one. In fact, the populations of nearby islands, they've been so isolated that their language is different from anything else on earth, even the closest population. Wow. Their language is completely different and they can't even communicate with their neighbors because they've because been it's so, so different. Yeah. That's amazing. I just didn't know if maybe like a Sean Connery type had made his way there and and had <laughs> you know weaseled in, but anyway, go ahead. They're recognized as a scheduled tribe by the government and in matters of governance function autonomously. According to some reports, the North Sentinel Island was among 29 Adaman and Nicobar Islands recently excluded from the ambit of the restricted area permit regime until uh, December 31st, 2022. The lifting of the regime would enable foreigners, barring nationals of select countries, to approach the island. And if that's true, then the government uh, will need to determine whether or not lifting the RAP as it's called, played a role in Cho's decision to venture onto the uh, North Sentinel Island to begin with. They, it appeared as though they were, uh, they were loosening the restrictions for access. I see. I think probably that was clarified by the men shooting at him with arrows. No, yeah. your access has not been loosened, sir. It actually, it seems weird, but it reminds me of Snake Island. Like, um, yeah, these guys have arrows and they're shooting at people or whatever. Uh, but it's it's those on the island that need the protecting. It's not the way that we would think, you know, you don't go to the island because it's dangerous. It's dangerous for them, for you to go to the island. Now, there have only been about 11 known encounters in the past 150 years between the residents of this island mm-hmm. and the, quote, outside world. Sure. The most recent one, until this last encounter last year, is from 2006. A couple of fishermen were killed when their boat, which they were using nearby to harvest crabs, uh, accidentally drifted to the island. They were killed by the local population. Their bodies were buried. Uh, The Indian Coast Guard ultimately retrieved one, but they were attacked by arrows in the process. So one of them is still buried on the island. After the 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake and tsunami, the Indian government flew helicopters over the Andaman Islands just to see how the different communities had fared to do kind of a wellness check. Sure. And um, one of the tribe members came running out of the jungle and started shooting arrows. At the helicopter? At the helicopter. And there are pictures that you may have seen online. Um, I have it here. This is, this is the picture from the helicopter. Oh, they're serious. They're really serious. I always thought that I was a bit of a introvert, you know, because I'm all like, I don't know if I want to go to the party. I don't know. <laughs> if you had a bow and arrow, your decision-making process would be a little simpler, you I think? I guess so. Or, yeah. In 1981, a cargo ship was wrecked near the island. This is one of the more notable events between outsiders and the uh, North Sentinel population. The Primrose cargo ship struck a nearby coral reef, and it shipwrecked 28 sailors. For nearly two weeks, Uh, sailors were later rescued by helicopter and uh, the local population scavenged the ship. Later expeditions to the island found that they were using metal tools that they fashioned from uh, scavenging the shipwreck. So 
And that's worth noting, too. Oftentimes, the media portrays them as, quote, Stone Age. They're not really Stone Age in the sense that they use metal objects that they find either on shipwrecks or stuff that's been washed ashore right. to make to make tools. They just don't make metal stuff. They don't smelt. Yeah. I don't think I would either. That's way too much work. In 1974, a National Geographic film crew and some anthropologists and some uh, law enforcement officials visited North Sentinel to shoot a documentary called Man in Search of Man. The occupants of the island shot arrows at the crew as they approached the island. Some of the policemen went ashore wearing armor and left gifts of coconuts and toys and then returned to the boat. Uh, They continued to shoot arrows at them uh, and they hit the film director in the thigh. He was actually shot with an arrow while filming this National Geographic event. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say they don't want you there. There's no question about that. In fact... One of the ways that they communicate that they don't want you there, mm-hmm. this has been witnessed several times, is they turn their back to you and then squat down and defecate. Oh. This is their way of saying, nope. You're not welcome. You are not welcome here. This is not a welcoming gesture. And then they shoot arrows at you. Sure. I think that's a great way to make your feelings known. I think we should we should do that now. Like, you know, you're talking about you don't really want to go to the right. party. I don't want to go to the party. Just arrows and dookie. Arrows and dookie would solve the issue. So there, there are several of these types of encounters that go back 150 years. And many think that this encounter, one of the earliest on record, or modern record anyway, is the reason why they so violently defend their island. In the late 1800s, India was still considered uh, one of Britain's major colonial outposts. British officers were in charge of regulating different communities in the region. And there was a uh, British naval officer, Maurice Vidal Portman, who oversaw the Andaman Islands. And he also documented the uh, tribes in the late 1800s. Portman and his team, which included uh, trackers from other tribes he'd already made contact with, went to North Sentinel in 1880. And they came upon an elderly couple and four children. So they kidnapped them. Basically, that was what happened. They, yeah. they took them back to Port Blair, the capital of the Andaman and Nicobar, Nicobar Islands. Once there, the elderly couple got very sick very quickly and died. Most likely, of course, their immune system was not strong enough to overcome the microbes that they were being exposed to sure. for the first time. Same old story. The children were sent back to the island with some gifts, according to Portman's account of his trip. He later wrote that he regretted introducing himself to the islanders. He said, quote, their association with outsiders has brought them nothing but harm, and it is a matter of great regret to me that such a pleasant race are so rapidly becoming extinct. Mm-hmm. He said that in an address to London's Royal Geographical Society. And then he said in a book that he wrote in, the, in 1899, quote, we cannot be said to have done anything more than increase their general terror and hostility to all comers in the future. That's sad. And also, it's wonderful that he had that uh, ability to step back from the situation and not just keep, you know, digging his feet in and say, no, we're, we're trying to make them better. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Because, uh, you know, so many politicians these days would would just be like, you know, how do we tax them? Yeah. <laughs> many people think that the reason that they are so hostile to outsiders 
goes back directly to this one incident sure. around 150 years ago that it's now baked into their their culture, their legend, their lore. Yeah. And why wouldn't it be? Steal people from them, then bring them back with smallpox blankets. It's tough to endear yourself to someone that way. Mm. Here's the Mr. Potato Head. Sorry, I killed your family. So there's the backstory to the uh, the news event that happened last November. Wow. Mr. Cho. That is fascinating. And I did not have that. I, I didn't know that much. I mean, I didn't know any of that history there. I just knew that they were a isolated mm. population. And that was that. That's that's really interesting and only furthers my belief that leave them alone. (laughs) It's definitely a delicate balance. You're talking about a population that is slowly dying out. If there's only 15 to 100 people left on this island, how much longer can they reproduce and how much longer before inbreeding really starts to take its toll? So one would think, yeah, these are people that we could help. Maybe somehow, but Mm. really, how do you do it? You can't. You really can't. You keep people away and let nature take its course, I guess. But I've always been fascinated with um, societies that have been isolated from what we consider to be modern culture. The exploration of the Amazon a hundred years ago, coming across civilizations that had existed on their own forever, had no idea we were out there, no idea of where technology has gone. In the case like this, it must really have fucked with their heads when helicopters came over their uh, right. their island. How would you perceive that from their perspective? Some sort of weird bird. Yeah, what the hell is that? It's like the tribes in the South Pacific that uh, to this day worship effigies of airplanes, World War II era airplanes that they built out of wood and sticks and straw and things that that they find on the island because during world war ii some royal air force planes landed in that area and they thought that they were gods is that true though or is that just a story it's called the cargo cult it's a belief system among members of a relatively undeveloped society which practice superstitious rituals hoping to bring modern goods supplied by more technologically advanced societies these cults were first described in Malaysia in the wake of contact with advanced Western cultures. So apparently some uh, cargo planes had come in, bringing goods, and then left. And they built facsimiles. Sure. I mean, it makes sense. Airplanes to try to draw back the cargo uh, planes to bring more goods. And that makes perfect sense from their perspective. Hey, thanks. We'd like more of that, please. What was that, Tang? I really enjoyed that. (laughs) And Spam. Please bring more Tang. And Spam. Oh, I love it. So there you go. That is fascinating. I would really love to visit that island because it looks beautiful, but I don't want to get shot with arrows. Nope, or there make are them nearby sick. islands yeah. we can go to. Right, let's do that. Okay. All righty. A box of oddities. It is a show that happens two times a week, and it's right in your pocket whether you know it or not. That sounds creepy. We appreciate you listening, and if you have it, especially if you if you're sitting on an iPhone, if you take the time to go to iTunes and give us a, a, a positive review, a positive rating. That just helps us grow the show, and we do really appreciate it. If you would do that, that would be fantastic. Oh, for surezies. We appreciate that very much. We appreciate you reaching out in all kinds of ways. And we did just get 
a mailbox for for the for the sending times for the for the snail mail. <laughs> yeah, we. I don't remember what the number is. So no, I mean yeah. I don't. We'll, I don't remember. But we'll, it's we'll talk. About we'll it. let you know. Yeah. In the meantime, we look forward to seeing you very very soon. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so. Let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those I report to, to beseech you for assistance. The box of oddities is free. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hello everyone, Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.